Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Just a quick recap of your weekly gallivanting around the globe. I called you in the middle of the week and you were in Israel, I believe. Yes. You never told me why. That was business or pleasure? Pleasure. My uh, brother made a wedding there. Ah, so you also travel for... Yes, for other purposes as well. Right. But that's so you were were somewhere else too. Poland. And I went from Warsaw to Tel Aviv on Wizz Air. Delightful. (laughs) Not. (laughs) Extra leg room. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Okay, so welcome back. Today we are starting the first of five episodes on the Holocaust. This is going to be in time for Tisha B'Av and the three weeks. Yes, and this series is being sponsored in memory of Chaim ben Baruch Aryeh, Ita Bas Yaakov, Yisrael Moshe ben Avram Zev, and Goldi Bas Yisrael Matisio, Hashem Yenokim Domom, who were murdered in the Holocaust. And actually, it's difficult to find the words to describe today's podcasts, other than to say that it is probably the most unusual one or ones of the past year. Um, the circumstances that whilst Germany was putting Jews to death across an entire continent between 1939 and 45, Jews, some of high rank, were actively serving in Hitler's army. How would they have been accepted into the German army at all? I mean, they they weren't legal citizens even. So it's actually complex, especially because the deportation of Jews from Germany only started in late 1941. There were no ghettos in Germany. People lived at home. And in fact, Hitler would not even have deported the German Jews then, but there were setbacks on the Eastern Front. It's a sort of a whole episode in its own right. But to define the issue, the Nuremberg Laws, so 1935-1936, defines full Jews as having three or four Jewish grandparents and half-Jews mishling with two Jewish grandparents, which obviously means that halakhically they could very well have been non-Jewish. And any of these categories were stripped of German citizenship. How many people roughly are we talking about? Well, in the lead up to the war, so if you go back, let's say, to uh, 1870, between, let's say, 1870 and 1930, there would be at least 80,000 mixed marriages across Austria and Germany. So taking an average, we're talking a quarter of a million Mischlinger children, assuming half of them are boys, 125,000. And there is pressure on the Nazi party by Aryan relatives who come from prominent families, which creates Article 7, through which Hitler could free individuals from the label of being a Jew or a Mischling by Aryanizing them with a stroke of the pen. And in fact, Hitler himself allowed several high-ranking Nazi officers of Jewish descent to remain in his army. 
we're talking the regular army. Um, the list includes at least 21 generals, seven admirals, and one field marshal. They weren't all halachically Jewish, about half were, but all were considered to be at least half Jews under Nazi law. General Helmut Wilberg is an example. He's born in Berlin to a Jewish mother and became one of the most distinguished airmen of World War I. But he's part of the inner cabinet of the Luftwaffe during the entire Second World War. General Helmut. Yes. Hey. But most of the full Jews and Mischling serving in the German armed forces in World War II didn't have this exemption. So they're on unsafe ground, as were their entire families. And the heads of the SS, so uh, Himmler, Heydrich, wanted them killed. So they live in the shadows, and obviously not all of them will survive. The most ill-fated ones die fighting for Hitler in uniform in, in France, in Russia, and they are buried somewhere in Europe. Some were removed from the German army and sent to concentration camps. Some ended up in Russian prisoner of war camps in 1945, where a very high percentage of German soldiers died. And then, unusually, there were those who died fighting for Israel in 1948. Um, they went there because either because they felt guilty that they had survived while killing Allied soldiers, or simply because they had soldiering skills and they wanted to help their fellow Jews, and they die in combat in the Israeli War of Independence. So uh, you have these outcomes to these um, soldiers. Um, but even those who survive, they have to deal with the moral dimension. You're taking part in a war of evil against good, helping Hitler. You're prolonging the war, which prolongs the Holocaust. Maybe it's considered indirect, and therefore saving my own life takes precedence. You know, what is the halacha? I guess either way, they had to deal with the guilt afterwards, halacha, even if it's mutter. Yes. So... I've chosen a few of their stories to share and then a very different one to end with. But before we get to that, one more important statistic. Germany was also home to Jews who had converted to Christianity voluntarily. Probably about 70,000 of them, which is the outcome of rampant assimilation. Now, of course, these Christianized Jews didn't view themselves as Jews until the Nazis came to power. But the Nazis didn't accept assimilation. You know, you sprinkled some water on yourself that doesn't allow you to be saved. So tens of thousands of these Jews were deported. In the Warsaw Ghetto alone, there were 5,000 Jews who were practicing Christianity. And there's a Michelin Jew by the name of Hans Gunzel who lost 57 relatives in the Holocaust. And he said that the tragedy of their deaths is that they had no idea what they were dying for because they weren't Jewish in any real sense of the word. Well, I guess that's one of the first times in history that um, assimilation, intermarriage, conversion wasn't an escape for the Jews. Neither an escape from Judaism nor from the Holocaust. People who had abandoned their Judaism were treated like their fellow Jews, and their survival was as equally unlikely. In fact, as you sort of mentioned, this is the first time in history that conversion doesn't save the Jews, which is a podcast in its own right. But, and this is the big but, 
for all of the people that we've just mentioned, if you somehow managed to stay in the army and hid your Jewish ancestry, then sometimes you survived in the open, so to speak. And in each case, it's a combination of many factors, sometimes, you know, absurd, sometimes extreme. Um, well, let's, let's start with one. You'll judge for yourself. Helmut Kopp. He's born in 1922 in East Prussia to a Jewish mother and a non-Jewish father. His mother died of TB in 1925. The father didn't want to take care of the kids, so both sets of grandparents end up with each with half the family. The Jewish side had lived in Germany for over 300 years. They are Orthodox. And Helmut Kopp moves in with his Jewish grandparents who enroll him in the Orthodox Jewish school. In the early 1930s, his grandparents want to emigrate to Palestine, but the court had ruled that their grandchild couldn't be taken out of the country. So they ask Berlin's Jewish orphanage to accept him. The director of the orphanage asks, is he Jewish? Yes. Is he circumcised? No. So he has his bris at the age of 12. In 1940, he volunteers for the army, because if you didn't want to end up in a concentration camp, then the Wehrmacht sounded like a safe bet. Who's going to look for you there? He lies about his ancestry, but they didn't ask for paperwork because he looked German. And because it was his father who was non-Jewish, he has a non-Jewish surname. And he ends up being sent to the Eastern Front. During the fighting in Russia, Kopp sees two executions of partisans, and one of them involved the hanging of 10 Russians. And he said afterwards that, you know, as I watched those partisans die, I thought if they knew about me, I would also be strung up on a lamppost. So his existence is lonely, it's frightening. And in February 44, his regiment stops temporarily at a train station in Hungary, and he sees the forced worker beating a Jewish prisoner. He walks up to the guy and says, why are you beating him? And the man says, because I'm responsible for these prisoners, and if we're not working hard, they'll kill us. And this one wasn't working. So cop says, if you hit him again, I'll kill you. And cop returns to the rest of his comrades and they can't understand why he wants to help Jews. So he sort of explains it away that, you know, no one should mistreat anybody else. So do you think he was aware of the Holocaust? Yes. He was aware of the systematic exterminations during the war. And I guess this is where you could say it's so unfathomable because it's much more personal than that. He knew then in 1942, the, the Nazis had sent his aunt and uncle to Riga, where they had been shot. And when he is in Latvia, Kopp hears the firing of machine guns of the Einsatzgruppen on the 1st of May 1942. So he must have felt extremely guilty in his role. I mean, he was, he was surviving when his own family was being shot and Jews were being murdered a few hundred yards away. So this is the moral question that they all had to face. And Cop would later say, what were my choices? You know, stay in the army and try and survive or go to a concentration camp and be killed. Who does that help other than Hitler? And he said, you know, he's proud of his Jewish heritage, that he said the Shema a few times. And he, as he put it, asked the Lord for protection. So 
okay make up your own mind you know what, what side of the equation you're going to put him where does he end up he ends up living in germany well so that's our first story the next survivor lieutenant pinchus hirschfeld was not just a Jew, but a religious one. Bit of a harder name to hide behind. Well, his name was Paul, but yes. Right. In 1935, he moves from the city in which he's being brought up, and he forged his ancestor's passport to now show Aryan ancestry, and he enters the infantry. Now, he's worried every day that somebody from his hometown might recognize him, but he's fortunate that it doesn't happen. During the fighting that he takes part in, he earns a number of medals, the War Merit Cross, the Sharpshooter Award. But when his unit marched east into uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Russia, he sees frequently Jews rounded up by the SS. And when he can, he secretly gives them special passes so they can get food. And as he put it, I did more for these persecuted Jews than the Jews who ran away to foreign countries, which is true. And then he would add, my brother, my sister, her children, husband, they were all murdered in the Holocaust. And he would get very emotional when describing these things. And he also witnesses Jews doing forced labor. So he doesn't feel guilty for what he did but for what he was not able to do to, to help the Jews in need. He said he, says the, he said the Shema every day, whatever other prayers when he could, and that he believes that on several occasions God spoke to him and saved his life. He, he gives a particular example. He was outside of Leningrad with uh, 12 army comrades looking for shelter. It was uh, minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and they found an old shack. And after a few minutes, he heard his name being called. So he thinks he's imagined it. But then, you know, perhaps there's an officer out there. He runs outside. There's no one there. And he feels that God wants him to go to a nearby hill. So he walks there and the shack takes a direct hit and all of his comrades are killed. And after the war, he resumes being an Orthodox Jew. And in his documents, his name is Pinchos ben Elozor. It's very appropriate for the Cedra this time of year. Yep. Then there were those who, while in the army, tried to help their own Jewish families. Because these soldiers, they weren't sort of like Jews who had false identities during the war. They were masquerading as Christians. In other words, they're completely Jewish, but pretending to be somebody else. In contrast, the, the army Jews that we're describing lived two lives. They were actively part of the army. They formed friendships <coughs> with fellow soldiers. I mean, after all, when they went into battle, they faced death, you know, together. They needed to rely on each other in combat. They were comrades in arms. But at night, so to speak, they were Jews stuck in Hitler's Germany. It was a, a completely bizarre situation yep. so helmut kruger he joined the army in 1940 in april 41 the army discovers his jewish secret and they dismiss him and many of his comrades are in envy of him 
But he is worried that he would now be unprotected, which means he prefers to risk his life on the front lines rather than be at home because it's safer. You know, totally a world turned on its head. And in reality, he was fortunate because his entire unit was wiped out during the battle for Moscow in the winter of 41-42. So, uh, ironically, Hitler saved his life. So now he's back home in Berlin and his mother is deported to Theresienstadt, but not him. So Kruger and his brother, they go to SS headquarters in Berlin to ask for her release because they are soldiers. They go in uniform. They're they're fighting on Hitler's behalf and they meet Adolf Eichmann's deputy. And they were successful? Not in this case, no. They meet SS Major Rolf Gunther, who told them that if it were up to him, he would have them deported too. But others have a different story. Captain Ernst Prager, for instance. So he applies for an Aryanization certificate that we mentioned at the beginning, which is approved by Adolf Hitler and by the Army Commander-in-Chief Wilhelm Keitel. I've actually seen a copy of the paperwork. So he's in the army and he's relatively safe. In 1943, during an encounter with Russian tanks, he was shot seven times. And he said afterwards that one of the things that kept him going was the the knowledge or perhaps the feeling that if he dies, his Jewish family is then unprotected and they're going to be deported. Literally at close hand, what these people are dealing with. So he survives. He returns to Germany for recuperation and he sets up a meeting, listen to this, with Eichmann himself. Now, his doctors warn him that traveling might kill him because of his wounds, but he travels from Nuremberg to Berlin. And because he is a decorated frontline officer, he gets a meeting with Eichmann. He is wrapped in bandages and Prager explains to Eichmann that his father has been drafted into forced labor and his uncle and aunt have been taken to Theresienstadt. And according to Prague and his wife, Eichmann responded by describing Theresienstadt as a home for the Jews where they are well-treated and could decide their own fates. For those of you who are aware, the Red Cross made this sort of fake film about, uh, about Theresienstadt. And Praga becomes irritated with Eichmann and he says to him, well, next you'll tell me that you regret not being Jewish, so you can't spend your holidays in Theresienstadt. Hmm. Eichmann then says to him, forced labor is outside of his jurisdiction. But he assures him that his uncle will be moved to the prominenta, the prominent Jews barracks, where he gets better food and he won't be deported to a death camp, which Eichmann did. But he says nothing about the aunt whom the Nazis later murdered. So, you know, the the whole setup is so bizarre, bizarre, undefinable, you know, at close quarters. No one writes about any of this. Well, there is a comprehensive book by a guy called Mark Rigg, although whatever we've discussed till now, possibly the most remarkable tale is that of Karl Heinz Lowy. He is born in Munich to two Jewish parents from a family that had fled the Spanish Inquisition to Germany 400 years earlier. Besides being Jews, they were patriots. They had a military background, which might seem strange to us today, but it was not uncommon for Jews in Germany at the time. His maternal grandfather had been a captain in the German army. 
and Louis remembers him putting on Tvillin and Dovening every day. And his father, Arnold, was born in Vienna and raised in a traditional Orthodox home. Now, in 33, when Hitler became Chancellor, Louis's family immediately experienced anti-Semitism. The children of pro-Nazi parents often attack him and beat him up on the way to school, but Louis's family still sent him to Cheda. And on the 6th of December 1934, he has his bar mitzvah in the large Munich synagogue. In the mid-1930s, Louis met a non-Jewish family called Grenacher in Switzerland, which will become relevant in a moment. And in 1939, Louis leaves Germany with his mother for Lyon in France to escape persecution. Now, they're in France, and ironically, when the war breaks out, the French police rounds up Louis and other German Jews and detains them. And uh, they protested that they despise Hitler. Why are they being detained? So representatives from the French Foreign Legion arrive and told these Jews, if you want to prove that you hate the Nazis, join the Foreign Legion. So Louis does so, and he is sent to the Sahara Desert. But the Germans then conquer France and are now in charge of the French Foreign Legion, even in Morocco. One day in 1943, German military police, they start sweeping through the town looking for people's papers. He's Jewish. So he tells the police that his name is Werner Grenacher, an ethnic German from Switzerland, using that friend's identity but that his papers had been stolen on the train and he travelled to the German-occupied sector to enlist in the Wehrmacht. And he gives them Grenacher's birth date, his mother's name, where he was born. Um, it's not going to be that easy for them to check up. They're in, they're in Morocco. So he's sent to the draft office in Paris. And he joins a few hundred men who all volunteered. And an officer then told them that they were going to serve in the Waffen-SS, and Louis is shocked. He's being called to serve in Hitler's elite private army. It's complete madness. Yeah. I mean, it's an unknown fact, but by the war's end of the almost one million men serving in the Waffen-SS, only a quarter of a million were actually German. Although the SS preached, you know, racial purity, it didn't let it get in the way of its recruiting quotas. Obviously, besides for the people with Jewish blood. Yeah. You're very well aware of that. Yes, so, I mean, unlike the regular German army, the Wehrmacht, which by '44 drafted half Jews because they were desperate for anyone, the Waffen-SS still did not allow anyone in its ranks with Jewish ancestry. No Michelinger, and definitely not someone like Lowy, who's a full Jew. Discovering the SS is death. And every day he asks himself, you know, will I survive? There are, you know, lots of reasons that could have been his downfall. So while he is serving this army, he does his best not to do too much or too little. He doesn't want to draw any attention. He wants to be, you know, in the middle. The stress is unimaginable. Unimaginable. Yeah. And one day he thought his secret had been discovered because his sergeant orders him to step forward and he yells at him, do you know you look just like a Jew the way you're standing? Wow. So he straightens up and the sergeant lets him return to his line and he realizes that his whole demeanor has to be like a German SS goy, you know, yeah. 
uh, shows how the Germans could sniff out Jews as well right and before they actually go to fight they took an oath of loyalty to Hitler but during that ceremony Lowy somehow remained silent no one noticed as he put it I wasn't about to swear loyalty courage and obedience unto death to Adolf Hitler the Führer of the German Reich and interestingly this oath ended with the words so help me God I mean, who these Nazis thought God was uh, is beyond me. So he now is an active soldier on duty. He's not, you know, peeling potatoes in the, in the barracks. He's in the army. He's shooting people. He's killing people. But Lowy always emphasized the difference between the Waffen SS and the Totenkopf, the Death's Head SS, um, who ran the extermination camps. The Waffen SS served on the front. Although he adds, you know, if his comrades knew about his Jewish past, they would have hung him up from the first tree. So did he know at all about the Holocaust if he was serving on the front lines? So he knew more than most did, but it was only after the war that he found out that the Nazis had deported his father with his family from Vienna to Minsk, where they were murdered. But his response to anyone critical of his Waffen-SS service was, what else could I have done? What a crazy life. And then afterwards, the struggle, the questions it leaves, it's just, it's never ending such a... Yep. So with that, let's move to a totally different scene. Still connected, I guess, to the German army, but pre-World War II, a fascinating story in its own right. The one we will end on this evening. In early 1934, a New York Jew called Freeman Bernstein was in the Orient in the East, having a drink with someone from the German embassy trying to sell him jade. Now, this Bernstein was a complete con man. He was a boxing fight promoter, card shark, a jewel smuggler. He fixed horse races and he managed to you know, lose money as fast as he made it. And during the conversation, Freeman mentions that he was getting hold of a little amount of nickel. As soon as he says this word, this metal, the Nazi diplomat reacts. His government needs a large quantity of nickel and would pay whatever it is because, you know, any country intending to invade Europe needed nickel. It had been used in the First World War for guns, for armor plating. And in fact, in 1916, Germany's U-boat Deutschland evaded the British blockade and brought home 360 tons of Canadian nickel. Canada was the producer of 90% of the world's supply. And under Hitler, Germany in 1934 switched all of their coins to being made out of nickel. And then it's melted down. This way they could buy in the nickel as a uh, uh, for supposedly peaceful reasons from Canada and, and then for use it for all material. But Canada understands what's going on, and they introduce legislation to forbid the export of nickel for any war purposes. So this Bernstein is now given a letter of introduction to somebody at the German embassy in Washington, to whom he shows samples of high-grade Canadian nickel, which, unbeknownst to the Nazis, he'd bought from a shop in Manhattan. Okay. He then agrees to travel to Nazi Germany, and make a deal with them. Now, there's a small technical problem. He doesn't have a passport because he was in jail, not for the first time. And the terms of his release were that he had to surrender his passport and report to his probation officer 
every month. For anybody else, this would have been an impediment to foreign travel. He pulls it off. He makes his way to Berlin. This is 1936. He stays in the Adlam Hotel in Berlin. Then he goes on to Dusseldorf. He attends synagogue in Nazi Germany for Rosh Hashanah at the end of September and may have still been there um, for Yom Kippur on October 7th. How was he going to buy embargoed material? He wasn't. What Freeman needed was a partner in Canada, somebody with connections in the metals trade, so it sounds authentic, but somebody whose business ethics would rival his own. Mm. And he finds Mayor Brenner, who's a 29-year-old playboy who's interested in fast horses, faster cars, and looting his father Nathan's scrap metal business. Mm. And between them, they float word that they were selling more than 200 tons of Canadian nickel. This is a time when worldwide exports are 40,000 tons in total. They explain to their Nazi clients that obviously the bill of lading from Canada to Germany would have to be marked scrap metal instead of nickel. This alteration of paperwork is necessary to get around the Canadian embargo on the unauthorized export of nickel. And Bernstein would now also need to bribe the inspections officer who would notice that there's no nickel there. He has to bribe him not to look too deeply into the shipment, but in the freezing February or March weather in Canada, that was more easy to uh, pull off. And the two shipments of nickel leave Halifax in March 1936. And I guess undoubtedly, when they opened the shipment in, I think it was Hamburg, there would have been a moment of baffled silence when they saw bags full of rusted railroad tracks, old car parts, dented tin cans. They probably would have got pretty angry when they realized that they'd been hustled by two Jews from North America for 35 tons of non-existent nickel. (laughs) So the label was true. Scrap metal. Right. Yes. Unbelievable. And there's a local photographer, a guy called Otto Reich, who documented this hoax on the Third Reich. And 19 years later, you can still see photos and it's clear that the cargo is scrap metal. They had to pay $2,000 for the bundles of old metal junk, and they resold it to the Nazi government for $150,000. Wow. Okay. By early 37, Freeman Bernstein is doing well. After years of, you know, scraping it together, borrowing from old friends, he's staying in the best hotels in California, he's traveling by limousine. His nephew, uh, Walter Shapiro, wrote a book about him. And on the evening of the 18th of February, 1937, he visits the famous actress Mae West in order to sell her some jewels, although he was actually hoping to sell her some phony white stones as well. Um, But she knows her uh, jewels. So um, her life didn't lack for colorful characters, but even for her, Freeman stood out and she devotes four pages of her autobiography to him, about him, in other words. She knows her jewellery, so she only buys the rubies and the best sapphires. And when she writes out the check, Freeman says, aren't you going to take the white ones? Everyone likes them the best. Mm. So Mae West responded, well, then you'll have no trouble selling them. (laughs) Right. He leaves the apartment 
and two plainclothes detectives from the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, arrest him. What is the charge? Embezzlement from the Nazi government. And he's put in jail. But as the press hear about the arrest, rather than talking about justice, the headlines focused on how a Jew in America is being persecuted by the Nazis. And after seven weeks in jail, the governor of California came under so much pressure that he releases Freeman without charge. Wow. Now, he never actually saw the money because his partner took him for a ride and he died a pauper in 1942. But nevertheless, in 1937, the Nazis and their army lost the equivalent of $3 million in today's currency because of two Jews. What are the chances? Yep. <laughs> Thank you. you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a very unusual podcast. I, I don't think many, definitely myself, have heard the stories of the Jews fighting for Hitler. So that yep. was very unique in its own way. This was the first of five episodes. And make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to so that you don't miss the rest. And thank you very much for coming on. Mm-hmm.